We have been in the church season of Lent. Forty days leading up to Holy Week, which we today begin. Forty days, not counting Sundays, because Sundays are always a celebration of what God has done in giving us salvation and then being raised from the dead on Easter Sunday. But listen to this about Lent, or at least this about a well-traveled Lent. A well-traveled Lent gets us in touch with our humanity. It helps us to recognize that we have not obeyed God nor His will for our life. Therefore, we are guilty. We are. Now you say to me, Pastor, I thought you were supposed to bring me good news on Sunday morning. I'm bringing you good news. We get in touch with the reality of our guilt. Because then something can happen. Not only is a well-traveled Lent helping us to get in touch with our humanity, it also gets us in touch with God's justice. And we recognize that as guilty people, we deserve, according to the law of God, to die. God told us in the very beginning, you disobey and you will die. Oh, this good news isn't getting any better, is it? (laughs) I love it. Thank you for having chutzpah. But there is good news because a well-traveled Lent gets us in touch with God's love for us in spite of the fact that we are guilty. A love that sends a Savior because we need to be rescued. And a well-traveled Lent not only gets us in touch with our need to be rescued or the need for a Savior, He gets us in touch with the Savior, God's Son, Jesus the Christ, the Promised One. And He has come to rescue, to restore us to a relationship with God and to transform our lives into His likeness, which is God's will for every human being. So often when we talk about God's will, people are looking something specific for themselves. This is specific, but it's specific for every human being to become in the likeness of Jesus the Christ. That is God's will. It always has been God's will. It always will be God's will for us. This is the long view of what God has been doing in the history of humanity. Walking as we have through Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 is but a small but significant portion of that walk. We've primarily been looking at our humanity, that is our human tendencies that reveal our guilt before God, our inability to follow God and His ways in how we understand and live our lives. This morning we will plumb the final phrase of our text from Proverbs where it is declared that what the Lord hates and things that are detestable to Him finally is people who stir up conflict in the community. Proverbs six nineteen, part B. As we dive in, pray with me. Holy Father, help us to hear what you are saying to each of us and all of us. Remind us first that it is never people whom you hate. We recognize that the Bible is very clear and declares your love for all people, and each of us is included in that. So first, thank you. 
But there are behaviors that you do hate that are detestable to you. Help us to discern what you say and by your love for us, help us to turn anew to you and your will so we might live as your rescued and redeemed children. As you had your son Jesus ride into Jerusalem on this day a long time ago, I ask that Jesus ride into Bethany Covenant this morning and bring about a transformation of our lives. In his matchless name we pray. Amen. Context is always paramount when unpacking a biblical text. And this morning, we will unpack the Bible's own response to what it means to stir up conflict in the community, Proverbs 6, 19b. By context, I mean not only important to know the meanings of words heard by the first readers and hearers of the text, but also to know who the first readers and the hearers were. For today, we'll be looking into the New Testament, the letter of James. In fact, James 4, 1 through 10. James was not the Apostle James, the brother of John from the fishing family in Galilee. This James was the half-brother of Jesus. James, the brother of John, has already been martyred by the time this was written. This letter by Jesus' half-brother is actually the first piece of the New Testament that was written. It was primarily written to Jewish believers, and in particular, those who were fleeing from Jerusalem because of the persecution of the church that happened following the martyrdom of Stephen as he was stoned to death, one of the early deacons of the church. As we answer the questions that are noted in the notes on the back page of your worship folder, note that I will be reading from the New Revised Standard Version of James' letter. James has some questions. The first one is this. Where do conflicts come from? Listen to what he writes. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are war within you? You want something and you do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Conflicts and disputes come from your warring cravings that are inside of us. These are at war because they oppose each other. God has put in us a craving for himself, for one that is greater than ourselves, one that made us, one that put in us a knowledge of things that are right and good, and the capacity to know those things that are wrong and bad. That's not just intuition. That is a God-given thing to us. He's put that capacity in us. And the Bible is clear that not only has God put cravings within us, but there is an evil one also at work. The Apostle Peter writes about this in his letter. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. The roaring lion tempts us with self-indulgent, self-satisfying cravings 
meant to gratify our flesh but not our soul. Momentary pleasures that deflect us from God and derail us from God's good ways for living our lives. Consequently, there's a constant battle that goes on within us between good and bad, between God and the evil one. We are so impacted by this that when we heed the roaring lion, we do terrible things to satisfy those evil cravings to the point that we don't even pray correctly as we seek to be followers of God. May this image help us grasp this just a little more profoundly. In our lives, there live two dogs, two dogs. One is good and godly, and one is not. And they are in a dog fight in here. You ever seen a dog fight? Horrible things to see. I always had dogs growing up. I thought it would be cool to have a dog that would win the fights. Wasn't cool. I didn't know any better. I was just a kid. The question is, with the fight that's going on in us, which dog wins? Which dog that's battling in our lives wins? The answer is clear. The one you feed. The one you feed. The follow-up question is important. Which dog are you and I feeding? What do we put into our mind? What do we put into our passions? What dog are we feeding? James asks a second question. Who's your friend? He writes, Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James 4.4. 4. He begins with a strong word about sexual infidelity, adulterers. He's not talking about physical sex and violating the bonds of marriage. He's talking here about the fact that these were believers in Jesus. These were people who had an intimate relationship with God because Jesus was in their life. But they were unfaithful in their relationship with him. They had become friends of the world. The believers receiving this letter are reminded of this intimacy by using the word adulterers. The problem is they become a friend with the wrong dog in their life, the roaring lion, the enemy of God. They feed the wrong dog, and as a result, they are not a gentle people, but are harsh. They are not a patient people, sticking with God's plan, but they are hot-tempered and angry. Listen to the wisdom that comes from Proverbs that these people knew week after week as they went and celebrated the Shabbat, the Sabbath, as they went to synagogue, they would hear words like this. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15.1. Or, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but one who is patient calms a quarrel. Proverbs 15.18. I could go on. There are hundreds of these Proverbs that the people who were the followers of Jesus and the, the Jews that were the early followers of Jesus knew so well. In Paul's letter to the church, the churches in the region of Galatia, 
He gives in chapter 5 a listing of the opposing cravings in our lives, of each of the dogs that are fighting to gain control. One is called the sin nature, and it lists them in chapter 5. The other is called the fruit of the Spirit, where God is in charge of our lives. Those are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he goes on to say, against which there is no law. They are what God longs to produce in us because Jesus is Lord in our lives. A great review for us personally to make sure we are feeding the right dog is to know the sin nature in contrast with the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. James asks another question. Well, okay, so what does God want? In James 4, 5, we read, Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the Scripture says, God yearns jealously jealously for the Spirit he has made to dwell in us? And he gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God yearns for his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. He has waited for centuries for the Holy Spirit to dwell in people. The Holy Spirit had not been sent like that yet. Hadn't even been sent like that on Palm Sunday. Hadn't even been sent like that on Good Friday. Hadn't even been sent like that on Easter Sunday. It didn't happen for 40 more days after Easter that finally the Holy Spirit would dwell within people. First, the Holy Spirit had to be unleashed from the temple in the Holy of Holies. The curtain had to be torn so that the people would know God has been set free from a prison of his own sorts in the Holy of Holies, and now he is coming on Pentecost to fill the lives of the people who believed. There were some more surprises coming, even more than Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter morning. God yearns not merely to be present, but he yearns to be our Lord. The driving force behind how we think, by the words that we choose to use, and by our behaviors with one another. God wants his followers to be fully surrendered, to be completely devoted followers of him, who reveal him by how they are, what they do, and how they process information. So James then asks a personal question. What can I do? What can I do? And in verses 7 through 10, at least the first part of 10, he gives us a plan. What we can do to put ourselves in a better position to be in God's will. How we can live by God's love and work together as a healthy community of believers in Jesus. Right now, we've been looking at the prison. Oh, and it's moving. I love it. (laughs) You know, you can look at this and go, all right, that one thinks they're alive here. They're moving around. But all of these are the things that come so naturally to us. We have haughty eyes. We gossip. We take selfies of ourselves every day, many times. It's all about us. We may not murder in the sense of actually killing someone, but we might as well, when we dismiss them, see them as invalid people to be around. We no longer associate with them for whatever reason. Jesus never did those things. We're in prison because of these behaviors that we commit. That's why we're guilty. So what can I do? 
I can admit my guilt. There's got to be more. Listen to what James instructs us in. Verse 7 and 10a, he says, humble yourself. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. To humble ourselves means we submit to him. We surrender to him. I must say, and I've said it before a couple of times since coming here last August, over the years I've heard so many evangelists and pastors talk with congregations about commit your ways to the Lord. And you can quote that in the Bible. There are a very few places where we're called to commit our ways to God. The problem with committing is when you do it, you remain in charge. I'm committed. I'm committed. But when you surrender and when you submit, you give up control. You allow God to have the control. And humbling ourselves before the Lord is to surrender and submit. If you do a word study in the Bible, you'll discover the word surrender and submit is multiple times more often used than commit ever was. It's an amazing thing to notice. It's not obvious because we tend to focus on the words that we've been taught since we were young, if we've been in the church. To humble ourselves means we submit and surrender. The sheer reality of submission to the Lord means that we are resisting the devil. If you say yes to God, you're saying no to the other one. One cannot, listen to this carefully, one cannot be genuinely submitted to the Lord and yet participating in the deeds of the evil one. You've basically told the Lord no when you choose to go the evil way. You can't do both. It's one or the other. Like the spring only produces good water or not good water. It doesn't produce both. It never has. So humble yourself is the first thing James says we can do. Second, he says, lament. James 4.9. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. We should be emotionally broken and in pain over those things we have thought and said and done that are contrary to God and his son Jesus. It has done irreparable damage in some cases in the lives of others and in our own life. We should also be emotionally broken and in pain over the things we have not done, we have not said, we have not thought that are in God's and his son Jesus' will for us to think and say and do. There's things we need to be so broken about in our lives. Oh, I could tell you stories. Oh, this is scary. Whenever the pastor says, I have something to confess, usually the thought is, okay, with whom and for how long? That's what comes across people's minds. There's so much to confess in my life. I walked without the Lord for 18 years. I fell in my relationship with the Lord a few times between 18 and 73. Not pretty, not good, not helpful, horrible. Much to lament about as I reflect on my own life. Genuine sorrow and authentic repentance are absolutely necessary. Let's make repentance real easy to understand. If you're going this way, and you're in trouble. 
and you're doing wrong things, stop. Admit, I'm going the wrong way. But just to admit that is not the answer. Repentance is turning around, and it's going the other way. That's what it is. You can't repent and continue to do what you're doing that's out of God's will. You only repent when you turn in a new direction. It takes God's help in our life. Remember, this is being written to believers. It's not being written to non-believers. These people already believe, but they've been going the wrong way. So we submit to God. We lament our disobedience, but we don't stay in lament. God never wants us to stay in lament. James continues by telling us, purify in verse 8. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. To purify is to focus. It's to become singular. God does this in us by giving us his Holy Spirit, who is fully and purely God. There is no variation in him. To purify our hearts was something that God does, but it is also to have a mind that is not duplicitous, that is, multi-thought-provoking. Instead, it is fully and wholly focused on Jesus and his way of living. Let God refocus your passions on him. Let God refocus your mind on him. And there's a part we play. We must make this choice. To whom do I give the control of my life? For every decision that I make, for every direction that I go, for everything, who's in control? To whom do I give the controls? I've had some friends who've wanted to have control of other people's lives. Do you have some people like that in your life? People who would like to control you? Don't give it to them. How about you? Do you like to control your life? Don't give it to yourself. It's a dead end. You'll be unsuccessful, and you'll know it soon. The only one who really is worthy of having control of a life is the one who created the life, the one who rescued the life, the one who redeems the life, and that's the person of Christ and the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. People who are genuinely... Wait, I'm going to wait for that a second. We must make the choice. The consequence of submission and lament before God and a purified heart and mind because of the Holy Spirit, now, James says, cleanse. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. The hands are a symbol of our behavior. The consequence of a purified heart, a focused mind, and a will submitted to God is cleansed behavior. Cleansed hands don't tear down. They build up. Cleansed hands do not diminish, but they increase. Cleansed hands aren't selfish. They are generous. Cleansed hands aren't in control. They serve because of the one who is controlled. Cleansed hands bless other people. The submission, this lament, this purifying and cleansing make it possible for us to draw near. And there James points to verse 8. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Getting close to God. Who doesn't want that, really? 
among those who believe in Christ. Who does not want to get close to God? Even those who don't know him may have a desire to get close to God. The psalmist wrote about that years and years before when he wrote, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Magnify the Lord. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? What do you think of when you hear magnify the Lord? What does that mean? Make it bigger? So you enlarge it? Let me suggest there's another way to think about that. I mean, I understand. You can have a magnifying glass. I had to get a magnifying glass yesterday. I'm, I'm heading out in July, the end of July, beginning of August, for a week of fishing in the boundary waters of northern Minnesota with my two sons and oldest grandson, a place I used to bring my boys when they were very young. Looking forward to it. But the problem is around here, people don't use Lindy rigs all that much. That's the... That's the the bait and uh, setup of choice to catch walleye, which we'll be going for. So I was in my basement yesterday trying to tie some snail line and some, put some things together for Lindy rigs, and I couldn't see. I mean, I've got progressive glasses. I'm not sure what that means, but I'm supposed to be able to see things close. I can actually see my hands now. But I couldn't see the line to go through all these little devices to create these Lindy rigs. So I had to run down. We fortunately have a Bass Pro Shop not too far from our house down in Milford. So I ran down to pick up a magnifying glass that could fit on my desk and that had LED lights on it so that I could see with bright light and things were about 10 times bigger as I looked through the glass. Yes, they got bigger. It was magnified. But really, they got closer. That's what they really do. That's what magnify ultimately means. When we magnify the Lord, we get closer to him. To make him larger, yes. Although that's an interesting thought, making God larger. Usually we struggle with not making him anything at all large. But to make him closer, to get tighter, more intimate with him. Magnify the Lord with me. Draw near to God. And people who are genuinely reconciled to God become people who don't argue and stir up controversy, but they reconcile. Fascinating drawing. Can you see it everywhere? Can you see over here? When I do it for them, can you see that? Probably not. Can you see it now? We have two unique pieces of a puzzle. And they're being put together. That's what God longs to do. Instead of tearing apart, instead of pointing fingers, instead of being criticizing all the time, instead of making trouble in the church, instead of stirring up controversy, God is looking for his people to put things together. What are the connecting points? These two pieces wouldn't fit in other ways than it's obvious here. But not here. That doesn't fit. That doesn't fit. That doesn't fit. This doesn't fit over here. But there's one way that they do work together, that they belong together. And that's true for every one of us. You belong to every other person in this room today. In some way, you fit. Are you letting God fit you with one another? Are we letting reconciliation 
do its work in our lives. There's one more thing. Listen to what James concludes in verse 10. It's a and then sort of thing. As you humble yourselves before the Lord, he will exalt you. He will lift you up. And you will be set free from prison. You will no longer be a slave to sin, the other dog. You will be reconciled to God and you will become a reconciler with each other. You will no longer be guilty. Isn't that the gospel? It is also the gospel that we're guilty. But the work of the gospel is to set us free from that guilt, to truly live. Just wait, just wait. This week in history and in our lives, your rescue is at hand. Soon you will no longer be slaves, nor will you be enslaved because of the work of Jesus the Messiah. Hallelujah. Praise God. May we live like freed people, reconciled and reconciling with one another. Pray with me. Father, I'm convinced that this is your holy and true word for us. Thank you for sending Jesus to rescue us. Thank you for raising up Jesus three days later to show us your desire and power of life for us. Help each of us and all of us to be completely surrendered to you and your son Jesus and filled with your Holy Spirit. Yes, we are guilty, but you have come to set us free and make us no longer slaves. Hallelujah. Amen.